a lot of times we as fundraisers think we need to be the smartest people in the room. No, you just need to be the best selector of partners. And that, that's your job, right? Your job as a fundraiser is actually a dot connector. Welcome back to What The Fundraising. I'm your host, Mallory Erickson, and this podcast is for impact leaders and change makers who are looking to fundamentally change the way they lead and fundraise. Today, I'm interviewing Vance Rausch. Vance is the founder and CEO of Overflow, a Silicon Valley-based technology company that empowers nonprofits, churches, and companies to unlock generosity by making it easy for their donors, supporters, and employees to give stock, ETFs, cryptocurrency, and other non-cash assets like vehicles, art, and collectibles through a technology platform that streamlines donations. In this conversation, you'll get to know Overflow, but you'll also hear how Vance recently raised $8 million in 45 days to secure a new church for the growing congregation he founded. Vance is filled with optimism and abundance, and you'll find it's contagious. He reminds us in this episode that we have an opportunity to unlock huge amounts of generosity if we can remove friction. And while he's talking about friction for donors, I'm thinking about how we remove friction for fundraisers too. Jump into this episode to get a dose of optimism from Vance and learn how Overflow is working to create a giving platform that with a single button opens up entirely new windows of possibilities for donors with stock, crypto, and other non-cash resources. There are so many exciting things happening in nonprofit tech right now. So let's dive in so you can meet Vance. Welcome, everyone. I am so excited to be here today with Vance Rausch. Vance, welcome to What the Fundraising. Thank you so much, Mallory. Such a pleasure to be here. I am so excited to talk to you. I remember our first conversation and just the energy when I got off the phone and just excitement about everything that you're doing. So just tell everyone a little bit about your history and what brings you to our conversation today. Sure. I'm the founder and CEO of Overflow. We are on mission to inspire the world to give, and we have a vision to create the infrastructure that makes generosity frictionless across every major asset class. So how did I get here? How did I get to founding this company just a couple of years ago? My career started in technology. So I started my career at this tiny company called Google. It was already like 14,000 employees at the time, but I feel blessed to be able to start my career there. It was an amazing entry point into technology. And for the past decade, I have been in companies like Google, really earlier stage startups, scaling and building internet products. Simultaneous to that, my wife and I started a church. So we started a church actually right across the street from Google with seven people in a living room. And now we have over 4,000 members and we just purchased our first physical location. We were just pop-up Sunday to Sunday, but now we have a fixed permanent venue, a $32 million venue. Wow. Congratulations. Thank you so much. It actually all comes full circle because... With my experience in technology and my experience in the importance of building local communities that serve the cities that they're in, I found that fundraising is so mission critical to that. Cannot build and serve a community without resources. And so I'm so glad to be able to talk to you today about what we're doing because one part of my journey has been using Overflow to even help our own church raise money to buy this building. We had to do a fundraising campaign of $8 million and we had to raise it in 45 days or else we would have lost the opportunity to purchase the building. 
Yeah. Whoa. Yeah, oh my yeah, God. Yeah. Okay. Tell us the story. <laughs> oh my goodness. Crazy story. Okay, Mallory. So what ended up happening is we had this opportunity to make a deposit on this building that was going on sale in Mountain View. Long story short, Google was also trying to buy the building, but the owners gave us a first right of refusal. They gave us a chance, right? But we had to put a $500,000 deposit to hold it. But because there were other bidders on the property, they said, hey, if you don't come up with the $8 million gap that you have right now to purchase the building, you're going to lose the $500,000 and we're going to sell it to somebody else. (laughs) So we went to our community. We have about 1,000 active recurring donors. Like I said, about 4,000 active members on a monthly basis. And we say, hey, congratulations. We are in contract for a building, a home for our church but there's only one catch. We have to raise $8 million in 45 <laughs> days. And so I'm telling you, the community rose to the occasion. We don't have really any multimillionaires in our community. We have regular average day people, probably on the spectrum of salaries, maybe a little bit more because we are in the Silicon Valley, but no multimillionaires in our community. 700 family units, Mallory across 45 days, I'm talking little girls in lemonade stands, people selling their homes and people using our platform Overflow to give stock in crypto, banded together. 45 days later, we raised $8 million. We have the keys. We just opened up the building three weeks ago. Wild, wild. So what the fundraising... (laughs) is my jam. I am not just trying to preach theory out here. I'm trying to encourage any fundraiser that's listening to this podcast. It is possible. The world is generous, but there are certain keys that we can talk about and we can unpack that maximize your opportunity for success. Okay. I love kicking off with that story and I can't wait. I'm so excited to talk about all of those pieces. Can we go back just one step? Can you define Mm -hmm. what you mean by friction? Because I love you start off and you said, our goal is to make things frictionless. So let's define that for everyone. And then let's dive into how we optimize the giving experience. Yeah. In the past decade, technology has really helped fundraising overall in one asset class specifically. But remember back in the day, People primarily gave through checks, right? People would write in checks, mail in checks, maybe wire transfers if they're really fancy. (laughs) But in the past decade, products, companies that have been built like PayPal, and then there's so many giving technologies now since then have revolutionized the way that people can give just even from their phone. Mm -hmm. They can give from their laptop, their desktop. So there's so many ways that you can participate now Simultaneous to that, we have also been able to see non-cash assets being given. So there's this whole, like in the past maybe three, four years, this whole inflection point with people contributing to what's called donor-advised funds. And primarily, people are opening up donor-advised funds because they want to actually give stocks and they want to give other non-cash assets like IRAs, mutual funds, ETFs, even cryptocurrency. But while giving has largely got online and giving is starting to go non-cash, and that's what I'm talking about with friction, if we know that actually most of the wealth in this world is tied up in non-cash assets, why isn't there an easy button on our websites to allow Mm. somebody to give from their stock portfolio, their ETF, their mutual fund, their crypto wallet? 
technology still catching up to that. That's actually why I started Overflow because we mm. feel like we're at the intersection of what's happening there. And it's really exciting because we have an opportunity to unlock unprecedented amounts of generosity if we can remove that friction. And so talk to me a little bit about what you were saying before in terms of the sort of optimization of the giving experience and the way, like yeah. how did you raise $8 million <laughs> in 45 days when you look at the nitty gritty of that strategy? Yeah, yeah. So the nitty gritty of that strategy, the way that was broken down is that $4 million of that was given completely online through ACH debit credit, right? So Overflow, we actually also have an ability to take in ACH, wire transfers, even checks, cash, debit credit. So half of it, people gave in the way that they've been giving for years now, directly online through through essentially their checking and savings account. The other half came through stocks and crypto. And so if I could break that down a little bit more, previously, the way to transfer a stock from your brokerage account to a charitable organization, you needed to download a form, physically fill it out, send it into your brokerage Mm. or work with your broker to, to be able to transact that for you. So it took paperwork and fax machines. Um, anybody listening to this likely doesn't have a fax machine. <laughs> and that's why most of the people listening to this probably only get one, two. If you're really good, you maybe get 10 stock donations mm. a year because it's a very manual process. Just imagine though, if you had a button that said donate stock through overflow right on your website. And just imagine this, and you can go to our website to see how it works, overflow.co. But when you click on that button, it directs the donor to connect to their Charles Schwab brokerage account, their Fidelity brokerage account, even their crypto wallet on Coinbase, mm. select which stock or crypto they want to give just with the click of a button, and then press submit. And in two minutes, you have now frictionlessly initiated a transaction of non-cash into either our brokerage account to liquidate it for you, Mr. or Mrs. Nonprofit, or directly to your crypto wallet or brokerage account that you already have set up. Mm. Some organizations are sophisticated and already have it. We provide options there. Yeah. I love that because setting up a brokerage account and liquidating stock was like my least favorite thing to do as a nonprofit yes. ED. It would like whatever those minutes were where it was lost in the abyss was potentially the most stressful experience stressful. of my life. We're going back like maybe 10 years now, but gosh, those were some hard times. I'm curious, did you find in your fundraising strategy in terms of how you were communicating with donors or your community, did you find any real difference in what the messaging needed to look like when you were trying to inspire stock or crypto giving versus cash assets? Absolutely. So there's two primary drivers why somebody Mm -hmm. might consider giving from their stock portfolio or their crypto wallet versus cash. One, and the most exciting one is, oh, I didn't even think that I could give that. And what Mm -hmm. it sparks in their imagination is, I can even be more generous. See, what happens when they even understand that it's an option and then you're making that option as easy as if they wanted to donate cash Mm. is it inspires thought of, oh, I don't actually use my stock for purchasing groceries or I'm not saving my Mm. stock for that vacation or for everyday expenses. So it's like you're tapping into a new pocket Mm. with your donor. And they almost see that pocket that they have 
as house money, mm-hmm. sitting on appreciated gains, capital gains that they know is going to get taxed anyways. And here is a second driver educating them that in some cases they can actually save pretty significantly on taxes. And so if they donate the stock directly and don't liquidate it, they actually avoid capital gains on that portion Mm. of stock. And then when you, Mr. or Mrs. Nonprofit, liquidate it, because you're a 501c3 tax-exempt organization, or if we liquidate it through our foundation on your behalf, it is not subject to any capital gains. And so it's literally a win-win situation. The donor feels great because they got to be more generous. They feel great because they take a charitable tax deduction on the fair market value, not at what they bought the stock at, Mm -hmm. but at the current fair market value. And then the nonprofit gets a more generous gift which translates into bigger impact. And so that's why we get so amped about this topic <laughs> because it truly will unlock gifts probably you otherwise wouldn't have had if you didn't use a platform like this or educate your donors in this way. Okay, so you just went through this fundraising campaign like in the last few months, right? Yeah, uh-huh, yep. So when the stock market was low, was not mm. doing so well. So one of the things I really appreciate about you is, and you said this, you said there's so much generosity out there. And I feel like there's a lot of language in our sector that perpetuates scarcity mindset. And, yeah. I, and I don't see that type of marketing or communication from you guys, which I really appreciate. And I feel really aligned with that. And so can you talk to me about what your mindset was going into that campaign, particularly in the economic climate that we're in, that changed anything in terms of the way you were talking about stock donating or crypto donating? Just talk Mm -hmm. me through that a little bit. Yeah, it emphasized the importance of really serving our donors. And the way that I see serving donors can be in the form of giving them options. Mm -hmm. If you maximize the amount of options you actually optimize the opportunity. Okay, what do I mean by that? In this environment, like you pointed out, because we're still in the midst of that market downturn, what's important? Cash. Mm. Cash is actually more king than it ever has been before. And so one way to serve your donors is to not pressure them, which is giving them one channel to give Mm. from, but to give them options. So an extension of that we've seen literally happening right now is that we see certain growth tech stocks being hit really hard. So, okay, maybe that means that people are going to be more mindful of if they give that or how much they give of that because the value of it might be suppressed or lower than they think it's worth. So maybe they want to hold on to that. But while growth tech stocks are down, everything in the economy is, okay, this goes down and then this inadvertently goes up. Gas prices, right, are really high, which also means that oil stocks are doing really well. So what have we seen in the past two months? Super generous gifts in the form of people's oil Mm. positions and oil stocks transitioning that. And there can be a lot to be said on your viewpoint of those companies and things like that. But at the end of the day, the value that has been transferred from that sector over to philanthropy is something that we're really excited about. So Mm. that's just one example of how, yes, in terms of if you just turn on the news and you just listen to everything's going down, that can breed limitation, that could breed worry, it could breed even fear. I think that sometimes we say no for our donors for them when we don't have to. Our job is not to say yes or no 
to them. Our job is to continue to present to them really exciting opportunities to have impact and then give them as many options to be able to participate in that. Yeah, I really love that. And I totally agree where I feel like we make a lot of decisions for our donors ahead of time. And there's a lot we could learn by really giving them the opportunity to make choices and figure out what's the right fit for them at the right time. I know one of the things that I hear a lot around stock and crypto donating is that fundraisers don't feel like they totally understand those entities. And so it makes them nervous to bring them up to their donors because they're afraid they're going to get questions that they then don't know how to answer. How do you think about that? And what do you see in that space? Yeah. One thing I say to it is tongue in cheek is that nobody really gets crypto. Okay. So don't be dismayed. Even (laughs) that friend that's in your ear telling you how much money they made on crypto they did it. They still <laughs> live they still live on the same street as you. They're still going to the same parties you go to. You're having dinner together. They're not rich off crypto, okay? <laughs> um I say that tongue in cheek. The real answer that's hopefully empowering is that you don't need to be an expert. Okay? That's why there are partners like you. There are materials like this podcast and there are companies like Overflow that are there to be the experts for you. Right. Every single day, I have a team of over 40 people that are thinking about stock in crypto donations, that are keeping up to date with the regulations, that are keeping up to date with the IRS compliance of what's needed to be existing in the charitable acknowledgement letter and the 8282 and the 8283 that needs to be filled out. Literally, this is why our company exists. Mm. Right. And so I would say that a lot of times, we as fundraisers think we need to be the smartest people in the room. No, you just need to be the best selector of partners. And that that's your job, right? Your job as a fundraiser is actually a dot connector, mm. right? A lot of times our job is to connect the donor to the story of impact mm. that they were actually able to be a part of because of your organization. You're a dot connector. And so you don't need to go super deep and go into the abyss of YouTube videos to understand the blockchain and all that type <laughs> of stuff. If you're passionate about that, you should do it. But because your primary job vocationally is to raise funds, this is just one tool in the toolkit to do that. And there's partners there that have mm. done the legwork for you. Yeah, I love that and really appreciate it. And I agree so much that our role is to really be stewards of relationships, connectors, liaisons, and based on all the things that you said around the financial benefits, around stock donating and things like that, the options, they're just so grateful to be getting information. And I always suggest just be honest about your level of knowledge. I don't know all the details about this, but I read this article and I figured you might be interested if this applied to you. Can I help collect some more information or can I connect you to the right folks? And so I, I totally agree. I think it's it feels intimidating. And I felt this as an ED, it can feel intimidating to talk about something that you don't, that you aren't an expert on, but I really want to encourage folks. I feel like in this area in particular, I love what you said. Everyone who's talking about it is not an expert on it. So join the party. (laughs) You're good. Talk to me a little bit about when we first talked, you were getting a a look at the nonprofit sector in a bigger way. And I'm curious, what are some of the things that you have noticed about the sector and you've been really excited to watch develop? And where do you hope to see the sector go in the coming years? I am seeing like never before 
talent and resources being invested into the sector, innovation coming into the sector. I'm actually releasing a book, Mallory, in January called High Growth Fundraising, The Silicon Valley Way. Okay. And Silicon Valley is not just a place anymore. It's a mindset. It's Mm -hmm. an idea around innovation. There are many Silicon Valleys popping up all over the world right now. Silicon Valley is in the cloud now. But the reason I named my book that is because of what Silicon Valley represents. It represents optimism. It represents taking big bets. It represents innovation. It represents technology. And I've never seen so much appetite because of people like you, because of companies like Overflow and because of organizations like, there's this one organization called New Story, okay? Mm-hmm. New Story, their mission is to end global homelessness. What in the world? Yes, I think you could be on whatever political spectrum, whatever. I think we all agree. Yes, let's all end global homelessness. The way that they've chosen to go after this mission is to invest in te- technology they 3D print homes and build whole neighborhoods through 3D printing technology currently in Latin America, but they're scaling that all over the world. That's crazy. (laughs) That is crazy. Let's have more people like that. I think there was this stigma for so long that I have to give up everything and I have Mm -hmm. to only eat top ramen to be a social impact pioneer. And that doesn't have to be the case. I know everybody wants to live a certain lifestyle and provide for their family. And I think because people are starting to understand, no, we want the smartest people. We want the most talented people building products, technology, and solutions Mm -hmm. that address the most pressing problems that we have. Mm -hmm. We see this whole wave and energy around climate change, for example. Mm -hmm. Some of the smartest people I know are flooding Mm -hmm. to this sector, right? And it's become attractive, right? Mm -hmm. Clean water, Scott Harrison, probably one of the more talented storytellers out there, dedicated his whole life towards clean water and democratizing that to places that don't have clean water in Mm -hmm. the form of charity water. And I think because leaders are rising up and saying that, you know what, profit is important, but it has to be purpose plus profit. Mm -hmm. It has to be something deeper that we are trying to solve here than just building the next app or next widget on top of Salesforce. Or, and nothing wrong with that. That can be leveraged and those profits can be used for philanthropy. What I'm saying is I've never seen so many talented people going into this philanthropic mm. sector. And that's really exciting. That I think is the early innings of something really transformative in our work. I love that. Where do you think our biggest growth edges are? If that's the momentum behind change in this sector, where are the friction points beyond just the donor's journey? But what are the things that we as a sector need to look at and need to be thinking about to make sure that we can really let that wave move us forward? Yeah, we need to start shifting. And for bigger organizations, it's going to be a longer shift. But overall, as a sector, we need to start shifting to be not so risk averse. We have to be willing to allocate budget to making bigger bets to move our missions forward Mm. at an accelerated fashion. I think, especially for bigger organizations, the proclivity could be, oh, it's all about defense. Like Mm. we can't rock the boat too much or we'll lose our base and things like that. And there's Mm. truth to that. I think you have to be wise 
and you have to be methodical and you have to be smart, but you can also be smart with allocating more budget towards innovative approaches. Because at the end of the day, in some of these causes that we're pursuing, we're almost out of time. Okay. So we're running out of time with things like the problem of homelessness. We are running out of time with the things like the problems of clean water and climate change. We're, we're running out of time. And so it's either we make bigger bets now or it's too late. And that's not a doom and gloom message. I don't believe that our future is doom and gloom. I'm, I'm very optimistic about it. What I'm saying is that that optimism needs to lead towards bigger bets. And you know what's, you know what's funny? When you actually have that mentality, you inspire more people to join in on that journey. Mm. When you're just doing step function iterations and you're playing defense and you're not playing enough offense, you're not actually going to really inspire the big donors to come in and be like, yes, people in the venture community, they spend tens of millions, hundreds of millions of dollars on a maybe. On a on probably a, not. <laughs> on a probably not. And anybody listening to this call, you're not even in that zone. You don't have an organization that's a probably not. You're in an organization that's a probably and already has been, and we've been doing it for years. So get more bold, take bigger bets, dream bigger, and you'll rally people to to join you. I love that. And I'm in the Bay Area. And so I think I've been infiltrated by the Silicon Valley mindset. And that's something that I really, I think about a lot in terms of the nonprofit sector. And I love kind of the, building in public model too. And when I think about venture funding and I think about, I've talked about on the podcast a number of times, you know, only 3% of pre-seed funding is ultimately going to be successful, right? 97% is going to fail, but they get buy-in around the journey. And we don't do a lot of that. We don't do a lot of buy-in around the vision and the journey where here's what I'm going to show you. I did in two months (laughs) and can you help me? And so when we play small, and then we are frustrated by the restricted fundraising and the small dollars we're raising towards these programs that we really could use a lot more money to do well. I think the big missing piece is something we really can learn from the venture fundraising in Silicon Valley and that whole mindset around how are we inviting people to build in public with us, to be a part of the journey, to believe in the change that we're trying to create. And so I love everything that you shared around that. Love that. Yeah, that's great. Okay. I know we're almost out of time. What question am I not asking you that I should be asking you right now? That's amazing. We talked a lot about opportunities to unlock net new Mm. forms of generosity. One thing that I encourage everybody that's listening to this is don't forsake also the the tactical things that not Mm. only unlock net new generosity, but that can produce net new efficiency. Okay. And so, especially if you're starting to get into the millions of dollars a year in fundraising, have you thought how much money you're spending on merchant fees? Have you thought about other tactical things like talking to your boomers about IRAs and RMD Mm. distributions? Have you created a legacy plan and a, Mm. a legacy fundraising strategy where people maybe, in the early parts of their life or in the latter parts of their life are starting to think about wills and trusts and legacy Mm. and and things like that. And so there's a lot of like smaller tactical things. Here's one thing Mm. that surprises me all the time, the amount of organizations that don't do a corporate match giving campaign. Mm. Literally their donors are already giving, 
And they work for Fortune 500 companies that will match anywhere from $500 to $10,000 a year. And that's like money left on the table. So I know like sometimes this can feel like, oh, these are just moving the needle in the tens Mm. of thousands and the ones and twos and things like that. But seven of those tactics really move Mm. the needle, right? And if you can set those disciplines early, it'll scale with you nicely. Mm. And I think a lot of people, they're looking for the one big swing. Mm. No, it's actually operational excellence across a myriad of things that I'd really encourage to to make sure you have your checklist and you're addressing each of those things in your fundraising journey. Oh, that is such good advice. Okay, tell folks where they should go to learn more about Overflow and if they want to connect with you. Thank you so much for all of this wisdom and congratulations again on your amazing fundraising success. And I'm so excited to get to share that story. Yeah, the primary way is overflow.co, not .com. But that is our website. That's where you can learn more about how we might be able to serve your organization or your journey as a fundraiser. Me personally, you can find me on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, LinkedIn. You just type in Vance Roush, V-A-N-C-E-R-O-U-S-H. Amazing. And I'll have all the links below as well so they can find you guys really easily. Thank you so much. Absolutely. Thanks, Mallory. All right, there are so many takeaways inside this episode. Here are a few of the things that I'm double-clicking on today. Number one, it's important to identify which of your fundraising efforts are suffering from donor friction at the wrong time. Number two, there are real tax benefits associated with giving stock, and it's a selling point in the solicitation of funds. You don't have to know all the details. You just have to give donors resources to learn more and prompt them to talk to their financial advisors. Number three, When the going gets tough, look for options. Providing education, ideas, and new avenues for giving is a great way to weather economic and giving downturns. Number four, does your organization avoid soliciting stock, crypto, and other non-traditional donation sources because they're unfamiliar or uncomfortable? You guys, it's time to get educated enough and get a partner who can help you. As a fundraiser, you are a conduit. You do not need to be the expert in everything. And number five, we understandably want to be conservative and protect our fundraising sources, but some element of risk-taking and even failure is necessary to move forward and grow. Okay, there are so many more takeaways and tips inside this episode, so head on over to malloryerickson.com backslash podcast to grab the full show notes and resources now. You'll also find more information there about Vance and Overflow. Thank you for spending this time with us today. If you enjoyed this episode, we would love it if you would give it a rating and review and share it with a friend. I'm so grateful for all of my listeners and the good hard work you're doing to make our world a better place. And if you miss me between episodes, stop by and say hello on Instagram under what the fundraising underscore. Have a great day and I'll see you next week.